Paratopia, where love is the thing. Ah, Paratopia. Love is the thing today, eh? Uh, For we have, back with us on the program, one Barbara Three Crow, whose latest book is Return of the Sacred Feminine in Teachings of the Grandmothers. I recommend you go pick that up directly from Barbara at www.barbara3crow.com, where she runs her own little online store. So without further ado... Barbara Three Crow. Paratopia, <laughs> please welcome back to the show a very froggy, yeah. if, <laughs> if lovely, uh, Barbara Three Crow. Barbara, thank you for coming back. Okay. Um, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and thanks for for giving us an update on on the the Kogi. I feel like you know now that we're we're just a few episodes away from the end of this first phase of our show, it's like I wanna tie up all the loose ends, like the ending of Lost or something, you know? I That's feel like right. this was a huge one, so thank you for coming back. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm very happy to be uh, back uh, talking with you and um, and to give an update on what's happening in the heart of the world. Yeah, with the ancient people there, the Kogi, so... So you actually flew out there shortly after our last interview, and you and... I- I'm not going to remember the gentleman's last name, but Rick... Rick Harlow. Rick Harlow, okay. We're uh, working on a documentary for the Kogi, with the Kogi. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Uh, The documentary was specific to the um, journey, which was called the Linea Negra, which is the journey around the Black Line, uh, which was very significant ceremony, for these people, for the indigenous people there. And the documentary um, was filmed of all of that process, and it will be used for their archives for their coming generations to teach, and there will be portions of that documentary that will be also uh, shown to the public. Hmm. Now, remind us how you came to be involved in this and how this sort of unfolded. Well, um, well, you know, it's quite amazing how spirit works, and um, and I was invited uh, last August, well, actually, 2009, August, um, to Pasto uh, in Colombia, where I had been actually going there for the last five years to teach and do ceremony, and I was invited to an indigenous gathering there, um, and during that time, the Kogi and um, elders of the other three Pueblos in the heart of the world, the Atahuaco and the Wiwa, were also there. And um, in the serendipitous way Spirit set us up, I had met uh, these elders, and um, we had a very significant uh, meeting, and they asked myself and Rick Harlow, who was with me, if we would help them to uh, fulfill this um, very important and ancient ceremony, uh, which was this journey around the um, base of the heart of the world. So we agreed. We talked about it because it's quite a daunting... It's quite daunting what they needed to do, but we felt so strongly that we wanted to help them uh, because we understood upon speaking with them because they are the 
caretakers at the heart of the world, mm-hmm. and their sacred works um, represent all of us, all people and all of life. So we wanted to support them with the ceremony as best we could. So we formed the Elders Project to raise funds to help them. And what did you expect to be doing when you arrived there, and then what really unfolded? Was it what you expected? Was it more? Well, you know, I've learned in my life, be careful of your expectations, Mm -hmm. of course. Um, My journey there was quite profound. Uh, I went to the heart of the world, um, and I met Rick there. He was there during the journey, and I came at the end of the journey and met the elders, and we proceeded up to the um, heart of the world, way up into the mountains, to one of the pueblos of the Arawako people. Mm-hmm. And um, it was, for me, like traveling back in time. Um, it was very far into the mountains by foot, a six-hour journey first um, in a Land Rover over terrain that when approaching certain areas, you would just you couldn't imagine getting through, but we did. And uh, then after a period of time, we had to leave the Land Rover and continue on foot up into the mountains. Arriving there, um, we... We had we spent pretty much a whole day in ceremony to purify ourselves in order to take part or actually even enter the pueblo with the people there. So that was quite quite an experience. Mm-hmm. Are people in in those communities or tribes are they suspicious of outsiders? Are they welcoming? Because I know in the documentary we see them sort of blocking off the bridge when the documentary crew leaves and saying. Don't come back, pretty much. Right. Yes. When we we spent um, several weeks with them, and during the period of time we were there, we were told that over years they've had many people come there to promise them things or offer help, and they never see them again. And I think they've certainly become very had become very discouraged and disillusioned about outsiders. Mostly, it seems that people come there as some sort of an adventure and um, or just maybe to claim that they've gone there into the heart of the world and met an ancient people. So these kinds of um, outsiders coming in there constantly Offering and never coming back or never fulfilling their offers have been um, very discouraging. And so, yes, I think that the people are very, you know, wary and, you know, uh, and suspicious. And uh, they sort of really observe you very, very deeply. And um, it's, it's unnerving in a way. And so at what point did you... Uh, realize that you're going to be sort of, I don't know, accepted enough to be helping out with ceremony and, and all of that? Was that, did you know that ahead of time or was that something that you had to sort of be vetted for on their terms when you were there? Well, we didn't really know what 
we were going to be um, taking part, and we felt that we were just going to continue the documentary. And um, because they had gone on the, the sacred journey um, to the 54 sacred sites, the process of that was um, enormous in that what they do is they go to the highest points in the Sierras, which are the snow-capped places, and they gather sacred implements or elements, which uh, they know what these are. They could be stones or various plant materials, and they carry them the all the way to the ocean. And they place them in the ocean, and these are called pagamentos or spiritual offerings. And it's a journey of prayer and communion with the elemental world and the Mother Earth. And their complete process is one of being in, in prayer, walking a prayer, you might say. And while they would, would travel to the 54 sacred sites, they would be gathering um, various elements to then take them back up to the mountain, to the highest points, back again. So it's sort of a, an exchange of energies, let's say, of, of, of very vital um, elements from both sources to exchange them for the purpose of balance and harmonizing. So when we went to the high point in the Pueblo, um, they had already gathered thousands of shells. I'd never seen anything quite like this. It was it was very stunning and touching. Um, they had gathered at the ocean literally thousands of various kinds of shells and seeds and stones, all hand-picked, not just randomly, but with a significant knowledge of what each one of these elements represent. That's the kind of knowledge that they hold. And they would then cart them all the way back up into the mountains. So when we arrived, they were waiting for us. And unbeknownst to us, um, they proceeded, after we spent a day of purifying ourselves, by the way, then they proceeded with their ceremony, working with these thousands of shells and stones and seed pods and various things that they had gathered. And for days, we sat with them in silence while they, while they worked with these elements and prayed over them and cleared them and, and whatever they had to do. So that was, to me, uh, so it touched me so deeply to realize this dedication and their way of life in relationship to the earth and their balancing and harmony uh, that they work with. And what I felt, you asked the question of what showed me that we were welcome and accepted was, I guess it was several days in when I was asked by uh, one of the mamas, Mama Sakukwe, he was the elder, the 94-year elder, that this journey was specifically to help um, help him to go on this journey. Mama, Ber, uh, Mama Norberto, his name is, he asked us, uh, myself and Rick, to prepare some of the pagamentos, and they would be offered to the highest points in the mountain along with the others. So that, that was, to me, that was sort of a point where we were 
embraced and, and accepted into into the process of this. Do you have any sense of how long a journey it is from the village to the top of a mountain to the ocean back to the village? I mean, we're talking days, weeks, hours? Well, we're, yes, we're talking days. And in now, in this time, some of that journey can be made um, uh, with, um, with jeeps because that's what we had to do because there were so many elders that we, you know, were going on this journey. And it was 300 miles around the base of the Sierra Nevada, the heart of the world, to go to these sacred sites and then to the ocean and then back up to the, to the high points of the mountain. So in times past, these kinds of journeys were completely done by, on foot, and it would be weeks, weeks before they would be complete. But this kind of journey that they went on that we supported hadn't been done in many, many years to this extent. So this was, <clears throat> this was uh, quite monumental in having this uh, take place. Mm-hmm. And, and they they were very, I just want to say that sure. they were so deeply touched and grateful for the help that they received. Um, and I, I really want to share that with your listeners because perhaps some of your listeners may have found their way to my site and have may have offered some donation to, to help the uh, Kogi. And um, when you say that you had to... Uh purify yourself, what was that process? Well, first of all, we were asked, we were given these little, um, these little threads. They weave there, so that's part of the um, process of men and women working together. They, they make um, their, their own uh, weavings, and they gave us uh, four threads in one hand, four threads in another hand, and guided us to... Uh, hold these um, and focus on releasing and giving into these little uh, threads first all the the energies from the outside world that we had carried there to give over that, to let it go, to release it. And the next process was um, to release all the foods, plastic, water bottles and whatever else that we had brought up to the mountain to release any energies that may have been attached to these. And the next process was for our own body to let go of and release any residual, you know, anxiety, fear, worry, anything negative. And the last procedure was we had to travel all the way down the mountain again to a pool of water. It's actually a river and to go into this certain area that they consider is a very sacred pool and immerse ourselves completely in the waters. <laughs> Which were quite cold. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Wow. Yes. And then we came all the way back up the mountain and then they began their ceremony, the process with these elements. And so it was quite an all day an all day uh, process. And how long were you there? I was there for a couple of weeks. Hmm. So when last we spoke uh, on the air about this, you'd said that there was some sort of debate amongst the mamas um, in regards to whether it's even worth 
keeping on the guardianship and the, the, the trying to do something in the face of what is clearly a coming storm. Um, is there any resolution to that? I mean, is that why this was so important and they had this, this huge gathering um, to do this in the first place? Is this sort of their way of saying we're, we're still in this till the end? I believe, yes. Um, I think that it had been determined by some of the um, the traditional mamos, you know, mamo meaning holy people or seers or shamans. It's, it's spelled M-A-M-O, and that means that they are... Um, they are of the sun, the sun people, or, the, or of the sun. But they're very, um, they're seers, and they do divinations, and they have the capability to really go deeply into the parallel realms, unknown realms, the place they call the Aluna, which is where they um, commune with uh, other beings, and um, they these particular mamas had determined that it is not up to them to determine that that it's too late or that we've gone beyond help, uh, that that's up to the, um, the greater beings, the creator, to determine that, and that, that they, the people there, the Kogi and the Atawako and the Wewa, have been given this position or job, if you want to call it, um, to do these sacred works for which they have been doing literally for for centuries and and they say that they have been in the heart of the world since the time when the gods lived on the earth and they have been in communion with them the various beings since that time so i think yes i believe that this continuation of this journey um is an alignment with their trust and faith, um, which which is um, quite deep and strong, and something that I really realized uh, we need ourselves. We need to come to this point of that trust and faith in our relationship um, to align with these elders in that way. Uh- you mentioned the three tribes. Were they all one giant community at one point, and they, they split up, or were they three sort of autonomous groups that came to um, the original instruction on their own? Do you happen to know that? Well, they were originally, before the Spanish came, there was a great civilization called the Teorana, and um, they they actually found um, the the what they call the Lost City, in the jungles in the Sierra Nevadas, uh, which no one really knew was there. Um, so it had been uncovered or discovered, let's say. And and um, and during that period of time, that was when Alan Herrera was there. He's uh, he's the um, videographer for, for National Geographic that actually finally made contact with the Kogi after centuries of their, their um, you know, hiding in, in the Sierras and, and people didn't know that they existed. And during that period of time in the 90s was when the, the lost city of the Teorana was actually discovered. So they were of one people 
And when they, when the Spanish came, they were, you know, quite uh, affected on many levels. They were, many of them were massacred. Their, their um, sacred items were taken and, and some things destroyed, but many of the people just fled. And who the Kogi are today are some of those people that uh, had disappeared. That And the, the, um, so the Arawako are uh, sort of, we might say, if you look at a, a huge, you know, a mountain, a tall mountain, in the most remote highest places is where the Kogis fled to. And in sort of in the middle areas of the mountains is where the Arawako are. And then the Wiwa. And then further down the mountain, at the more at the base, uh, remained uh, what is the Concuarmo, who really through these centuries have lost their uh, law of origins due to westernization and religious intrusions. And, and now they're trying to reinstate the four Pueblos together because of their law of origins uh, and the sacred works that they are all meant to do together in order to harmonize and balance all of life. Here's what I'm trying to figure out. The, um, the law of origins and the, the sacred works, um, talking about this area as the heart of the world, and we discussed you know, other sacred sites being correlates to other body parts. Um, but just the fact that there are these sacred energy sites around the world, um, then does that mean that the indigenous peoples in those parts, um, either now if they're still there or at one time, also had the same uh, set of instructions that they all worked together, even if they didn't know each other, separated by distance in the world? Yes, and I think that's pretty fantastic uh, to me. That's um, part of the great mystery that, that the indigenous people speak about, is that there was some level of communication. Um, like, for instance, the Kogi going into the Aluna, where they commune with other beings and and uh, so on, that there is a collective consciousness that is um, very prevalent in ancient cultures throughout the whole world. And yes, there are sacred sites in different parts of indigenous areas where they also would go to perform ceremonies and leave offerings and pretty much along the same lines as the, um, the Kogi. Yeah. So do they ever contact other humans through the Aluna? Would the Lakota, for instance, be aware of the Aluna? Do they also function in that? You know, I have a feeling that, that that's true. For instance, I might say, you know, you might look at the, the Hopi. I know the Hopi have this capability. Um, and um, I, I believe that that's a, that's a possibility, a very strong possibility, yes. Yeah. And did you get any more insight into what the Aluna is or how it is that they that, that they function in there? Well... Did they bring you into the Aluna? They, you know, they didn't bring me into the Aluna, but I feel like, I, I think that some of us travel to a place, we may not call it the Aluna, but I think it is a similar or maybe the same place, you know, out-of-body journeys or realms that where we experience certain things or meet uh, beings um, that are quite profound, 
I think it's a similar experience. Um, I think it's um, it's a parallel realm or a realm that appears within where they are or they enter into a parallel realm. I think it, it exists, a, a continuing existence, present always. And uh, so one has to place themselves in a certain frame of mind energetically in order to travel there. It's sort of like you might say um, a process that we we learn to um, commune with others. And sometimes it's random because we often may think of someone, for instance, and then they call us and they say, I was thinking of you. And, um, you know, there's there are things going on in our realm and our capabilities that we really haven't fully tapped into, and I think these these elders, these ancient ones, they have that. That's their life. They they have lived that. And most indigenous peoples in the you know in the long ago did that, and some of them still do, like the Kogi and the Atawako, and I believe some Hopi people. Yeah, it, it's interesting because you know we have on um, people like Dean Radin um, who do psi research. And talk about quantum entanglement, and it gets into sort of you know, oneness. We're all one energy, and so that maybe psychic abilities um, happen when we're tapped into the oneness energy, as opposed to separate matter, you know, particles. Um, but it sounds like the Aluna is a place. It sounds like it's not just tapping into oneness, but that there's actually a realm there. Is, is that correct? Well, that's a very good question, and I can't really answer that. Uh, I can only surmise um, in response to your question, what is that, you know, specifically what does that appear when you say a place? I mean, it's not a planet. It's not a room. Um it's some some sphere or some energy or some the ether something along those lines. Yes, you might say the ether. Uh, you know, I I mean, I think that for instance, I I know for sure these elders have been communing with some of us, and to some who have never even met them, but sort of have heard about them. Uh, or have been drawn, very drawn, to find out about these people. And I've been looking at that, and what I realize is that the uh, elders, the mamas, had said that recently, and I can't give any kind of a date or time on this, but they said recently their journeys into the Aluna, they have realized that there are not as many beings or others within this realm as there had once been that they would commune with or teach or or discern or maybe they counsel and they they were in a way alarmed about this and and so in my thinking and my sense that they are reaching out in that realm whatever you want to say the aluna mm-hmm. that realm reaching out to all of humanity, uh, to to uh, engage them, to teach them, because they say 
that they want to teach us, the younger brothers, how to um, care and do the harmonizing uh, of the mother. And how did you speak to them? Did you have a translator? Did you learn their language? Well, I, I do have a translator, and that's a Spanish. So there's their language that has to be translated into Spanish and then into English. It's quite a process. I've not yet learned Spanish. I can sort of understand and pick up a lot, but I can't have very long conversations. Mm-hmm. I, I can more understand what's being said rather than have, uh, you know, expressed myself. So I have to have a translator, yeah. Well, I don't, so it, it's hard to tell how authentic a translation is, but when I saw the BBC documentary, um, it sounded like they were trying to be as faithful to the language as they knew how. Um, and you could just tell that by the words that they would leave out of sentences in the translation that would be common words in English. Right. Um, but it sounded like they were incredibly rational, well thought out, philosophical mm-hmm. by nature. Not, not that they were trying, not, not like I would do, you know, but that that's how they raise their children to be, um, do you find that? Do you find them to be to have a handle on the rational world and to have either I don't want to say rejected it, but just not gone that way because that would put them out of balance in some in some sense, as opposed to in other words, uh, the thing we've been sort of dealing with on this show for the past few episodes um, has been whether or not indigenous mind um, or heart. Uh, exists parallel to Western rational hierarchical mind. And so they're separate but but parallel. Or if the rational mind is a bastardization, <laughs> is a misstep out of indigenous mind. If that makes sense to you, what I just said, I, I hope it does. Uh, well, what What's your thought having actually spent time with them? Well, I think it certainly may appear that way. I think that may be something really to investigate. I am a great uh, believer in um, in uh, the Western Western civilization being brainwashed and uh, from for many centuries and um, and being uh, of course um, induced and also insulated into a certain form of thinking and belief system that isn't in alignment with indigenous ways at all. And, of course, indigenous ways are about harmonizing and about respect and recognizing the earth as a living being. If you could imagine all humans understanding this, how would, our, how would we be functioning then? I mean, and this is the way the indigenous people function, with that realization, with that knowledge. And that's the way they live their whole life. Right. at least these ancient people, because they have not been westernized, brainwashed by the religions. And so I think that there is something going on here that has um, sort of hidden or, or you know, removed uh, our true nature. You know? Right. I want to I just sort of drive this point home, if it is the correct point to make, uh, that uh, because my point in 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 mentioning that they seem so rational in in their conversation there um, in that documentary is that they could completely comprehend and understand uh, Western rational you know suit and tie discussion, but we could not completely understand what they're talking about. It, it, is that fair to say? 
Yes, that's why they call us the younger brothers. <laughs> right. <laughs> because we are like children. And we, we have a lot to learn, and yet what we're learning is tainted by, well, let's say, corporate greed and, a, and an agenda, a hidden agenda. So, yes, I think that, um, and I think that they very well understand, they've come to comprehend through the, through the destruction that they see happening to the earth, because that this is incomprehensible to them. So, to Western society, it's, it's very acceptable and typical. And no one could really, it, people can't wrap their minds around, well, how would we function without electricity now or the iPod now? How could we even do that? I mean, we, technology is good, but I think it's been, it's been used uh, to do more harm than good. And, and I, think, I think technology is a gift from the, from the beings, from the star beings. But in fact, it's been manipulated and used by um, those who who are basically manipulated themselves by the you know the greedy energies, the dark energies. Well, in fact, they talk about that too, right? I mean, how literal are they when they say that there are sorcerers, sort of being like puppet masters and trying to manipulate and control humanity? Um, is that you know is that a metaphor for something else, or do they literally mean that there are sorcerers sitting somewhere? you know, in a meditative state or however that works, trying well, to manipulate us. let me share you with you. I, I did speak with you about this, but I'd like to share it again in relation to these energies, these sorcerers. Um, and I, <clears throat> I think that they are very well aware of this, and I think we have to keep exploring this. Um, but the only thing I can come to... Well, it might not be logic, but logically, in, in the limited experience or knowledge that I have with this, uh, because I have to go into it more deeply to receive more guidance, but everything has been created, as you know, all of creation is as it is meant to be. And that includes the dark, the light, positive, negative. Um, there are those energies that are great challengers for us, they are great teachers for us, and they often appear as a very dark uh, energy, um, It's, it's that, as well as the light, you know, those energies of the light, and they all appear as teachers. Um, but for myself, I recently had an experience where I was taken into, maybe it was the Aluna, I, because I was really communing with um, the beings, the uh, extraterrestrial beings, because I had been gifted this piece of Moldavite, which I understood uh, came directly from the extraterrestrial realms. And it, its purpose is basically uh, enlightenment and um, advancement. And I, because I, I just recently returned from spending those weeks with the um, mamas and the people in the heart of the world, I was very deep in that, still deep, still being held deeply in that experience of their, the depth of their relationship and their commitment and the works that they do. I was still really deeply held in that, and I felt upon my return, of course, I'm, I'm always asking for how, how can we, and myself, of course, too, be uh, more effective to help the, the greater whole, to, to help 
the issues to, you know, what, what we're all dealing with and what's frightening us to death here and the encroachment of, of this, you know, this um, despairing, you know, demise <laughs> that everybody's talking about. And I was taken that night into this place uh, where it was, it was a very barren, dark, ominous landscape. And I was standing there, and before me, a little way off, were these, these robed or cloaked, hooded figures. And um, I, I, um, I rapidly went towards them energetically. I, I went right up to them to see who these were. What, what was this? Who, who was this? And I looked inside the hoods, and there was complete, complete blackness, complete darkness. And I realized that these were the sorcerers. And I shifted back into my physical self, standing there, and immediately dropped into a place of empowerment and invoking. And I became almost a sorceress myself, if you want to call it. I was like... If I had had a staff or a wand, uh, I would have had a beam of light on the end of it, and I would have been calling in the the powers of light and the powers of of health and well-being and all the gods and beings and the angels, and, and I was in the throes of this, and I was calling upon all that I could come into, that I could grasp, that would call towards me and the world um, those beings those powers, those angels to bring light and harmony against these sorcerers who were standing there. Very, very, they were dark and ominous and still but powerful. And so I was doing this work uh, because I had asked before I went to sleep, what can I do? Show me and guide me to be more effective. And I think we have to be careful what we pray for <laughs> because I was put in this position. Although there was no hesitation, I be- just began. And, uh, and when I ended, this energy, these energies of these dark sorcerers, I heard them in my mind and they said, you cannot ever eliminate us. You cannot ever dispel us. But you are holding us at bay. But we are incrementally moving towards the windows of opportunity. And the windows of opportunity are the humans that are in fear and doubt, who are greedy, who are hateful. Those are our windows of opportunity that we look to enter into. And that, to me, was... Very, very powerful. It showed me the level of work that these elders may very well be engaging in themselves as these sorcerers are entities. Um, they had the cloaks on, these robes on and hooded cloaks because they, they were showing themselves to me. But otherwise, there was nothing there. Mm-hmm. Just, just a, an, a dark, dark energy. How, so, how did this unfold? Were, was it a dream? Was it, were you meditating? Uh, well, I have a way that I go places in the dream time. And 
how that is, is I work with, often work with sacred stones. This particular stone, as I said, was a moldavite, or sometimes it's, I guess it's called a tektite. And I engage with the spirit of that um, element before I go to sleep. And as I'm going to sleep, I'm communing with this spirit of the this element, and I'm communing with it in the way that I need uh, to um, be guided or receive answers. And as you're going, drifting off to sleep, you have to hold this communion with this element. And then you are transported, which happened. I was transported. So it wasn't necessarily a dream. It's a different, it's different than a dream. It's a, an, it's a, um, I guess it's, a, well, it's a place that I was taken to, like I said, but, and perhaps this is what the Aluna may be like, you know. It's not a dream, and one can tell the difference. It's, it's, uh, right. you know, when you have, I call them waking dreams or telling dreams. It's sort of like, well, this really wasn't a dream. This was a vision or this was a, an actual um, happening, something actually uh, was real. You know? Well, th- did this happen before you would fall asleep? Is this something that would be the first thing that happens when you shut your eyes? It's, yes, as you're going to sleep, you have to go into sleep, right. but you have to hold this focus and communion in order to get there, in order for them to take you. Because your mind will disrupt. If you start thinking about other things, your intention is disrupted. And that's a practice that we can all do, is to learn how to receive guidance and uh, write information or relation uh, or to travel to different places, to go to people go other places. This is a practice that uh, is available to everyone. Um, is this something where dreamlike things have ever happened, or is it always um, as delineated as that? Yes, it's always that way. I mean, I have communed to find a missing boy. I have gone to travel to persons that I want to communicate with. Um, various things like that. And does it always work for you? Do you always uh, end up uh, there, wherever there is? It always works for me if I if I hold my focus, intention, and communion as I'm drifting into sleep. If my mind starts chatterboxing, it's disruptive, mm-hmm. and it won't happen. Hmm. It's sort of like a parallel realm. When I, I used to go... I used to um, put myself in a semi-meditative sleep. It's almost like the place I call in between waking and sleeping, where you're not really awake, but you're not really asleep either. It's Mm -hmm. sort of a a gateway or or an in-between doorway of realms, different realms, Mm -hmm. where then I would begin to have a communication and, and ask for certain things or guidance or just be, be there and, um, and things would appear, beings would appear or information would appear. But initially, I would have a question um, to receive information and I would get the exact thing that I needed. Hmm. That's, that's fascinating to me because, you know, we don't normally hear sort of the mechanics of that. We always hear people talk 
about what happened to them. But I'm never, I was never clear before, you know, is that a dream? Is that someone meditating? I mean, you know, me with my weird meditation energy thing, well, I've been sort of letting it go pretty much nightly and somewhat daily. Um, and at night, if I sit, I usually am sitting on the floor um, in front of the couch, right? legs crossed. And Jeff and I have discussed this when you, there, there's sometimes when your eyes are shut, the blackness sort of that that's normally there becomes this expanse. I mean, yes. it becomes another dimension to it. Right. Well, I'm now bringing that out into the room. <laughs> so okay. somehow my surroundings become that interior, what was an interior domain. Right. Um, and I'm manipulating energies in it, moving around in it, and it's thick and, and all of this. And I don't understand all of what's going on there, but it's certainly fascinating. You can do this. You can. Is that related to what you're talking about? Well, yes, I mean, because you can do what I'm talking about without going into a deep sleep. It's just that I happen to use that, that one of those particular, um, you know, um, ways, and that's, that's just one. And the other one is just not going to a deep sleep but holding yourself in that half-awake, half-sleep place. Those are two different processes. Right. And when you're meditating, you can you can reach into those deep places also, and uh, there are different areas. If you focus with your eyes closed, as you're speaking about, you focus on the blackness, the black expanse before you. But if you engage your focus um, in different field, in the different parts of that field, mm-hmm. in other words, not just looking straight ahead and going into that dark field. But if you, let's say, if you look up to the point, um, your eyes are closed, but you're looking at that dark field, but now you shift your your vision, although your eyes are closed, to the top of your forehead, like it was, uh, like you're looking out of your third eye, for instance, mm-hmm. you, something different will appear. Um, so, and... Also, you can, you'll have your eyes closed, you'll see the dark field in front of you, but then you can also close that off and something else will appear. Hmm. So, and you can, as you're sitting there and you become into that deep place, you can put your physical, let's see, how, how can I describe this? See, this is, this is difficult because the language that we have, um, lim- it limits us, but you can step behind or move yourself behind outside of your physical self as you're sitting there meditating. And then you are behind your physical self and you become just a, like a clear or hollow vessel. And you can then be taken over by a channel or a, a being to become the, the um, a trance, you know, in a trance that would uh, be uh, another being or entity speaking through you. Right. Uh, is that dangerous? Only if you don't set it up first <laughs> so, so that you are only aligning with and calling in only those that are of the light and in relation to the, the you know, the highest the most good for all. I mean, this is this is something that we have capabilities of, and that is is a 
an awareness that we must have first about the power that we really truly have. Because yes, you can be susceptible to anything, like those sorcerers that are looking for windows of opportunity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Jeff and I, I don't know if we talked about this or not, but we did a a mushroom, magic mushroom experiment for the show. Uh And um, when you take that magic mushroom journey, um, if you take enough of it, you you go through, um, you see these sort of bright, colorful symbols and patterns, things like that with your eyes closed. I mean, it, it, this is sort of like the beginning stages, the onset of this trip. Um, and just today, just this afternoon, I let said meditation energy go, and um, it ended up basically lying me down on the couch and doing a bunch of sort of gestures over my face, but ultimately pushing up on the inside of my eyelid, like up into my brow, yeah, really hard, and, you know, you see light from your retina, and, you know, I mean, if you just push on your eye, you see, like, weird light and stuff, but this was not that. This was exactly the mushroom trip. This was coordinated, colorful, multicolored um, symbols coming at you like a, what are, what are those called? Kaleidos- kaleidoscope. Like a kaleidoscope, yeah. Yep. Um, and so I wonder if what this meditation energy didn't just show me is that whatever the mushroom activates in you, that's where it's located, you know, in the body. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I just, I just find it fascinating that we've got all of these things that I can just sort of putz around with, um, <laughs> you know, haphazardly that, that we just take for granted or we just say, oh, that's, you know, nonsense or whatever. And, and But there are people who know how to use those things as actual, I don't know if you want to call them tools or if you want to call them states of mind uh, that are necessary if you're going to be living a holistic lifestyle. I don't know, however you want to call it. Um, Well, I think they are tools, and I think they're very ancient tools, and I think that they are available, but we don't take them seriously. I think there are some that may take them seriously, but I think that I think that we don't take the time to make this um, a practice to really go deeply and fully in into this um, gift, because I believe it is a gift. And, for instance, another experience I had, I had something happening where I had some kind of a, a constant infection or something was going on inside of my nose, and I couldn't figure out what it was, and I was doctoring it with Neosporin and all kinds of stuff, and it wouldn't go away. So I'm I'm not one to run to the doctor, so I do my own doctoring, but I also commune with my body to find out, you know, I listen to what's happening and it tells me, it gives me a lot of information. And I used one of the sacred stones that I work with and asked the spirit of that stone, which, uh, again, as I was falling off to sleep, I asked the question, I asked to be guided what this was, to show me what this was. And it actually took me three nights of this process before I finally, in in a very deep sleep, because I had gone off into a very deep sleep, and I heard this voice call out to me very strongly and um, told me what, what this was, and it woke me up. And I, okay, so that was my answer, and in fact, the only way that I could heal this was to go to a doctor and get antibiotics, which I did, and it went away. So it's a practice, and it, it, it's, these are tools, 
that we can use to help ourselves in many, many areas and aspects of our lives, but we don't really take them seriously or continue with them or believe fully in these. And if we believe fully in something, we're dedicated to it, you see. And that's the difference between, for instance, the Kogi going into the Aluna. There's no question. What I realized when I was there, I, I was observing and absorbing. And at one point, Mama Roberto was making some music. There were turtle shells that these young boys were working with to make music, and he was making singing and drumming, and they were calling for rain. And the skies were completely clear and blue. It was hot. And the drumming and singing and went on and on and on. And we were just sitting there, and the day was, you know, going on. And suddenly, over, way over in the distance, I noticed these huge thunderheads starting to peek out uh, behind the mountains. And I noticed this, and, of course, I started looking around, the wind started coming up. I started looking around at, at, at the people there in the Pueblo, and no one was jumping around or saying, oh, look, it's working. Oh, the spirits are, the rain spirits are coming. And it, it really struck me very strongly the difference between their culture and Western culture and how they, they don't even question that this is, is this going to work. They know. They know that they're communing with the spirits. They know that the spirits will respond. And the difference in our culture is, you know, everybody says, oh, look, we are being answered. Look, the spirits are listening. And the behind that is a doubt. Right, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, did they, what was normal conversation for you like there with them? Did you talk about any of these things that you're talking about with me that went on with you, did they give you any advice? Did you have uh, non-spiritual discussions? What was sort of day-to-day -day activity? Well, the whole time we were there, pretty much they were working with these um, elements, the thousands of shells and stones, and, and then they, then, uh, so we were a, a part of that in that we were making some of the pagamentos with some of these elements, and Mostly the process was watching this. They told us no one from the outside has ever seen this ceremony. So that was a, a very special privilege that we were invited to take part in and to observe for all that period of time. Mm -hmm. That was very, very special. And, um, you know, they are very worried about the waters. The waters there are drying up and the snows are dry, are leaving the high peaks and they're very worried. And on the journey, some of the sacred sites that they have gone to for centuries but they haven't been to in, in about, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 years, now they had difficulty getting to these because some of them are on private property now and they were not allowed. Even when they asked the owners of the property, they were denied entrance. Some of the places near the ocean, uh, one of the most sacred sites are, is this rock formation 
um, right at the ocean. And by the way, if people go to my site, barbara3crow.com, um, they can see a lot of these photos of the, uh, of the journey and of the elders. Um, so this, this rock, beautiful, unusual, sacred area where these rocks were um, in this film, it just breaks your heart because as they approach this area right at the, right at the edge of the ocean where these sacred uh, formations were, now what sits upon this, on these stones on their sacred site is a big cement building. And I have to tell you, watching the looks on their faces, it was very sad. And a lot of the sites, there were other areas, other stone formations that were uh, had were filled with graffiti. Um, some of the water sources coming off the mountain that are very, very sacred, very, very essential for the Mother Earth's life as the water is were filled with garbage and were trickling. And one of the elders said 40 years ago, now that would be the last time that they were there, 40 years ago this was a flowing waterway. Now look at there's no water here. Hmm. So, and they are saying that there's going to come a time when the waters will, you know, be drying up more and more. And what are we going to do? How will we live without water? And uh, but yet they continue on with, but they are asking us, all of the younger brothers, they're asking us to help them. And with that, I I formed what I call the Harmonizing the Earth Meditation Community, mm-hmm. where uh, regularly um, people come and we lay out a formation of crystals and water and seeds and various elements, uh, as they do themselves. They work with all of these elements. Um, and we do a, uh, a meditation with an intention of harmonizing and healing the waters and all of life. And um, everyone that comes is receiving amazing things, and messages and a sense of, of peace, even joy. I mean, people are just, it's really quite amazing. So we are not only receiving, we're also, you know, in our intention and the love from our heart and our, our, our um, desire to bring healing and help to the Mother Earth, we are receiving um, so much. And I believe that energetically and vibrationally, these elements, the crystals, for instance, and the waters and the garnets, these are all, as you know, they're broadcasters of energy. They, they do their work. They're in, constant, they're in constant process. But when you work with them yourself and um, impart your intention, your heartfelt intention, that's what they receive and emanate that and that moves out into the, the world. So people can do this themselves if they feel frustrated or if they feel disheartened or frightened about what's going on. These are things that they can do. Hmm. And in a way, what we're doing is we're supporting the works of the Kogi people and other indigenous people who are praying for the healing and harmonizing of the earth. Yeah. 
you know, it's it's funny because I think in our um, cartoonish thinking about indigenous people, we think like, well, they must um, they must pray to their gods. You know, gee, what what did we possibly do to deserve this? But in reality, they know it's us, don't they? They do. They surely do. And, uh, you know, it's amazing because they said the one elder who spoke on the film, um, the elder brother's message, he said, we don't, we're not, we're not angry. Uh, we don't um, hate the younger brothers. We're not angry at the younger brothers. Um, we, we know they, they just, they're like children <laughs> and they're just doing as they please and they don't really understand. You know, and they want, he said, they want us to wake up. They want us to know. They want us to understand. And what they really want us to understand is the capabilities that we do have to make a difference. That's what I truly believe, because they know they can make a difference. But now they said that it's gotten the intensity of what's happening is so huge that they are having difficulties and they need our help. Well, Barbara Three Crow, thank you, thank you, thank you again for taking me down a notch. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> thanks for uh, thanks for coming on and, and sharing your insights um, and sharing a bit of yourself as well. Thank you, thank you very much. I know that we're going to be continuing with the Elders Project um, because the journey around the um, Black Line, around the base of the heart of the world, um, according to their Law of Origins must take place four times a year. And the next one, people can connect to um, my website, and it will be put on there. Okay, and what can people do to help out? If they want to send a donation, it is a non-for-profit, and it's the Elders Project. It can be sent, a check to the Elders Project can be sent to Earth Action, Care of the Elders Project, P.O. Box 63, Amherst, A-M-H-E-R-S-T, Massachusetts, 01004. Very good. Well, once again, Barbara, thanks thanks for uh, coming on the show and sharing with us and uh, seeing us off into the next phase of Paratopia. Thank you so much, and good luck to you in your next part of the journey. Thank you. This is Jason Offit, author of Darkness Walks, The Shadow People Among Us, and you're listening to Paratopia. Hey, this is Stacy. This is Wes. Be sure to check us out on the Black Fridays podcast. Where we explore the esoteric one conversation at a time. You can check us out at www.theblackfridays.net. It's a little bit freaky. And we will see you there. If you record audio for any purpose, chances are you want it to be heard. You want to attract the largest audience possible who can hear your message. That's where we come in. We're CyberEars.com, a revolutionary Internet service that will host your audio files and help you promote and track its popularity. Considering hosting a podcast to the world? 
we have all the automated tools to make the process as simple and easy as it can be. No technical mumbo-jumbo to work out. CyberEars.com does all the work for you. You record it. We take care of the rest. So don't delay. Go to CyberEars.com today and register for a free trial account. Upload your audio files and get heard. With CyberEars.com, it's your audio on your terms. For esoteric research and investigation into the enigmatic. Dirty Radio is a weekly podcast that features interviews with the world's leading paranormal researchers. Download episodes of Dirty Radio from your favorite podcatcher or directly from the show website at www.dirtyradio.com. Dirty Radio. Listen. Learn. Laugh. Paratopia, I sat in the park the other day and I tried to write an article for UFO Magazine and I just couldn't couldn't do it. I um, ended up writing this instead and I will share it now with you because I don't know what else to do with it. Oakham's Razor states that the simplest answer is usually the real answer. When it comes to the ufological and the paranormal, it's hard to tell which simplest answer to go with. Usually, there are several, including a question that rarely, if ever, gets the serious scrutiny it deserves. That question is this. Do things like personal psychological filters and cultural overlay inform and distort perception, or are they the tools by which one perceives it all? What are we, and how do we perceive, are questions we need to ask prior to asking, what is the paranormal or alien? What happens when we don't ask first questions first? Ufology. This field sucks. There are shining stars in the field illuminating what it could be, decent researchers and organizations, but even they must hide their hands, so to speak, because that's what it takes to appear credible when confronted by skeptics, politicians, and TV personalities on the mainstream news stage. Sure, you can fake it for a while like the disclosure movement, but your motives and credentials eventually catch up with you. When that happens, the critics rightly shred you, and the UFO community whines that you've set them back in the mainstream. As if everyone was just about to take this seriously, but now they'll roll their eyes and move on. Since this is always what happens, I submit to you that it's the way it works. That whole scenario playing on a loop is ufology. A major part of it, anyway. George Hansen chalks this up to his favorite catch-all, the trickster. He's not wrong. There is a set of trickster patterns that have been plaguing humanity since Western mind divorced itself from indigenous heart. Perhaps all of the larger frustrations we assume are human nature are actually the necessary evils of living a lie. Living, that is, in self-imposed exile from source. We call this evolution. It's all part of the lie. So we're liars. All of us trapped in the rationalist hierarchy of our own manufacture. Eh, could use a rewrite, probably. <laughs> or a conclusion, or something. But I think I've uh, I've learned a little something from the Teokas and Ghost Horse interview straight up through Barbara Three Crow. I won't go so far as to say that we've learned anything about the paranormal here, <laughs> but um, I think I've certainly learned something about human consciousness, and it especially piecing together Teokas and Ghost Horse with George Hansen. 
Um, it seems that this whole Western rational hierarchical mind that believes it is evolving up and out of indigenous art is not an evolution. It's actually just what naturally occurs when overpopulation happens. You, you get a large population, um, and then you have to have these sorts of hierarchical rational structures in thought and then in buildings, essentially, for that society to sustain itself. Now, how that break occurs, how we get out of balance within ourselves to overpopulate is its own mystery. Maybe it has to do with location. Perhaps people who live in, you know, deserts necessarily are going to be out of balance because because there's less food available, so you have to produce more children to make things work. I don't know. I mean, I'm just guessing at that. But the fundamental point for me is that you have in human consciousness, at the healthy base, indigenous heart, thinking coming from the heart, which is informed by rationality, and, and certainly that's a part of it, but it's not the thing that demands all of the attention and rules and structures and all this sort of stuff, you know, to be moral and, you know, all of that. All of that type of stuff is completely unnecessary. Um, all of the religious stuff is completely unnecessary when you come from the heart because you don't need to be told uh, how to be a moral person and to act accordingly. And in fact, telling people that and, and putting down rules and laws and structures about that is a form of repression. It's to keep and maintain the rational hierarchical mindset, which, of course, the spiritual person poo-poos and says, you know, we need to break away from that, break away from the ego and all of that, but if you do that, then society crumbles. You see? You see the dilemma? We've built this society. We call it evolution. And it will crumble if we don't continue to do that. And while I think that's what needs to happen, ultimately, to get back to health, the health of the species, um, I'm, I'm the marginal person telling you that. Right? So... Therefore, <laughs> it's not going to happen unless unless everyone decides to be marginal for some reason. I mean, there's got to be some sort of outside force that moves us um, if it's going to happen at a species-wide level. Otherwise, it's as Christian Murdy said, it's an individual process. And interestingly, I wanted our our final guest next week to be Peter Kingsley, who I think is the first person that I've read since Krishnamurti, who completely, absolutely gets it. That indefinable it. And so we've had a lot of great you know, personal phone conversations lately, uh, and he was going to be our final guest, but he had an unfortunate emergency that is taking him away from this, so we'll have to get back with him later in the year. But one of the things that he had said to me on the phone was, because you know, I maintain that in order for there to be a quote-unquote spiritual upgrade, there needs to be a species dieback. There needs to be population control, essentially. And he said, why? Why is that? And I didn't, I don't think I could articulate it well, but since putting together Teokas and Ghost Horse with George Hansen, I, I think, I think I can. I think it's as simple as what we just said, which is that the rational structures aren't going to go away 
because they are completely necessary to maintain the global society that we've built up. And so individuals can, quote-unquote, gain enlightenment, or however you want to put that, pop out of the matrix, um, but they will always be few and far between because the structure is not set up for that. Um, And the structure doesn't have to be there. The structure was a misstep. It might have been a misstep that always happens, Um, but it's a misstep. And that misstep is like, it's like having two operating systems. You've got Mac and you've got Windows, right? Mac would be, let's say Mac is indigenous and, or enlightenment. These are sort of synonymous terms. And Windows is rational, you know, hierarchical mind. So you've got these two operating systems, and in order for one to kick in in the species, the structures that support the other have to go away. And so that's only going to happen when something wakes us up or shocks us, you know, some sort of cataclysm. An indigenous mind can only maintain itself because indigenous mind is balance. It can only maintain itself in balanced population. Like, once everything is in balance, you don't overpopulate. You don't underpopulate. Everything is just fine. Uh, It's only when you get out of balance that you overpopulate. And once you overpopulate, then rational mind kicks in. You see where I'm going with this? And so, in order for rational mind to no longer be the case you have to die back into proper proportion. It's all hand in hand. And I think that that is solid, (laughs) and that that is something that we have learned, or at least that I have learned here in the final few episodes. And it's interesting because I know, you know, at least one person on our message board said um, this whole, you know, thing about rational hierarchical mind is just, you know, we're all just sniffing our own farts here. And once again, you know, the unsatisfactory answer for that person is the reason you don't get what we're saying is because you're embedded in that rational mind. And so, you know, it's another language to you. And that to say that out loud, of course, sounds like you're saying, well, um, you know, I'm better than you or there's some. But it's not that it's, you know, or or that it's a cop out answer, you know, something. Well, because how could I not understand? I'm so smart. But it's not about intellect. It's about transcendental knowledge or uh, just sort of seeing the bigger picture, stepping outside and looking at it and going, huh, what's really going on here? So I hope that's an aha moment for everybody, as Oprah would say, or a teachable moment, as Obama would say. Um, And I think it took me a while to get to this because I was just trapped in terminology myself, like when, you know, Teokas and Ghost Horse comes on and talks about indigenous mind or indigenous heart. I've always thought of indigenous meaning tribal, you know, so it's kind of like, well, he's talking about the Lakota and he's talking about this tribal mindset and maybe he's trying to sell us something that they actually aren't because look at our history books telling us what these bad Indians did, you know, or these noble savages or these dumb whatever, whatever. I mean, it's all, all of this other side to indigenous Americans or indigenous Turtle Islanders is completely missing from anything. I mean, you get a sense of it from some Howard Zinn stuff, you know, soldiers' diaries, where they're talking about how how kind and caring these people are and how free they are. Um, but, uh, you know, essentially, it, it their perspective is missing from the dialogue of American history. And that's... Isn't the whole thing of America kind of ironic? It's like you've got these 
peoples all living on on this plot of land here who are free. And then come the Europeans trying to escape the tyranny of taxes in the church, and they set up a country based on doctrines of freedom by killing out the people who live there who are already free to begin with. I, I think that really actually gets to the heart of the issue, which is that we kill freedom and then we we supplant it with with this false sense of freedom. You know, you kill natural sense of morality and moral compass to instill religious moral compass, which is repression. And that doctrine of freedom is also repression. Now, in the world of repression, in the world of rational hierarchy, of course, the doctrine of freedom is going to be better than the doctrine of tyranny or dictatorships or, you know, that sort of thing. Of course. But what I'm saying is that that entire structure that in which all of those things play need not exist. And that's not an ideal. That's indigenous. So when we talk about enlightenment, I think we're not talking about um, evolving so much as we're talking about recontextualizing ourselves properly. And for us Westerners to do that, it requires a death of self. I don't know whether or not that's required for indigenous people. I just don't know because I'm not one. The self dies, it gets recontextualized properly, and then resurrects as the face of truth. Truth, the sort of self-awareness of oneness, plays out in separation. Plays out in separate organisms. I mean, oneness is these separate organisms. Oneness is everything. Everything adds up to oneness. But the self-awareness aspect of that can only play out through humans, at least on this planet, as far as we know. And that self-awareness aspect plays out, um, at least initially, as truth which appears in our brains as insights into the world, into ourselves. And there are things beyond that, of course, but that's the initial thing, and I think that's something that we can latch on to, and so let's not get ahead of ourselves here. But I guess I should make it clear that when I say the self-awareness of oneness uh, it, it can only play out through humans as far as we know, I'm not talking about self-awareness, period, because I know people say, well, what about dolphins? What about certain mammals um, or, or animals? And I'm not talking about just self-awareness. I'm talking about the full force of the all, of consciousness. That's something that is unique to us as far as we know. And so that's beyond self-recognition and compassion and recognizing another person. It's, it's a lot deeper, deeper mind. We have deeper mind, clearly. So that's that. Uh, I find all of that fascinating now. When I listen to this interview with Barbara Three Crow, and she talks about the Aluna, I find all of that fascinating. That seems real to me. When you know the Kogi spend their entire lives, or at least the the mamas do, um, in what I will loosely call meditation. I mean, it certainly is beyond what we consider meditation when you stick a kid in a home or a cave for the first nine years of their life and only describe the outside world to them so that they build up themselves in a way completely foreign to anything that we know. Um, I think that when they talk about the Aluna um, and they say that there were sort of teacher beings in there that are no longer there anymore or they're few and far between and that worries them, that seems real to me, you know? that's that's um, That seems about right on time here, doesn't it? So I think there are entire aspects of our 
ourselves, obviously, and our surroundings that we uh, Westerners simply don't understand. And we call it mythology or we call it antiquated cultural overlay. And maybe there's some of that going on. But ultimately, I think at the heart of it, there is something that we're missing that, that these folks are not and that they completely could get us. They could understand what we're saying. I mean, they could learn math and science and all that. Because I think there's always this sort of um, the lie that we tell ourselves, which is like, you know, if you if you were to... Well, let's put it this way. There, there were a tribe of people living uh, in a thickly forested area, and I don't remember where, let's say the Amazon. I'm probably wrong. But let's say the Amazon that were just dis- discovered, and they couldn't see, but a few feet in front of their faces. So that was their their visual perspective didn't go beyond that because they lived in densely forested areas. And so their eyes were accustomed to that sort of claustrophobic aspect of nature. And when the anthropologist took a took their leader up on a mountain, um, he freaked out. He saw people below, and he thought that they were tiny ant-like people because he didn't have the perspective of, oh, those are people down there, and he freaked out and, and all that. Now, of course, that's the freak-out of a new perspective, but that's something that you can explain to that person, and they will then incorporate and go, oh, okay, I get it. I mean, all it takes is to then walk down the mountain and meet those people, you know? So I think even if there's a sort of a culture shock or a perspective shock that happens when some indigenous folks, at least, um, come into contact with our perspective, at the end of the day, they can understand it. All it takes is a walk down the mountain or an explanation because they do have a rational component to them that is fully functioning. On the other hand, the stuff that they know um, is not stuff that we can understand unless we live it. And once again, doesn't this get into doctrine versus innate sense, or all of our societies are built on, you know, things written on paper, facsimiles of the things that we should be. And then the things that we should be, we put outside ourselves and say, that's an ideal. Oh, that's Jesus. That's Buddha. That's not, that's not something we can achieve. That's just something that we should aspire to. But then people who are quote unquote natural don't aspire to those things. They don't have to write them down on paper. They don't have to constantly remind themselves. They don't have to set up tribunals and the such because they are it. So why aren't we it? Well, we aren't. That's always been my question, right, in the show. Why aren't we that? Well, we aren't that, as it turns out, because we're overpopulated and because that can exist here. This must go away for that to be the case. Now, will it? I don't know. And I, but I, I think that uh, you only know that this isn't evolution, that we're not evolving toward anything once it is taken away from you, once the house of cards falls, once the grid goes down. And it's interesting, I, you know, I wonder, you know, I, I just now I'm looking at these little things that we do that could be missteps, you know. Concrete was building roads. I mean, was that, was the payoff worth it to be able to, to be able to drive a car from point A to point B, was that worth cutting our feet off from the earth and separating ourselves and starting this other mechanism of, you know, I mean, you get what I'm saying. I don't need to belabor the point. So that's my takeaway. And I think if there are other beings living in the Aluna or alongside us or all around us and they are invisible to 
us because we block them out with this structure. Or it takes a special skill set to perceive them properly, uh, a skill set that is not acquirable or teachable through rational means as anything other than theoretical. Well, one, they are going to look like an enemy, aren't they? If they try to approach us. You know, or if they're just sort of like ghosts or things that we don't understand that don't seem to be really approaching us but just sort of exist. I mean, if those things are real, um, they're going to look scary. They're going to look like a curiosity. Uh, always. Like, we'll never figure them out. Because to figure them out is to figure ourselves out alongside it. And to do that is to destroy rational Western mind. We don't want to do that. We want to collapse everything down inside of our box, of our perspective. Because we like our perspective, we think. Because here we are. Except that we don't really like our perspective, do we? We just kind of like keep fucking up and saying, well, that's human nature. But I'm not convinced that it is. Um, now, here's where my prejudices come in. When Barbara Three Crow starts talking about herself, I mean, it's all well and good when I hear about the Kogi or the Lakota, you know, going into the Aluna or, you know, being downloaded with information or whatever, you know, any of those sorts of things that we uh, otherwise, or I'll say I, otherwise consider New Age, when I hear it coming from them, it's fine. Oh, that's that's who they are. When I hear it coming from Barbara Three Crow, who looks and speaks a lot like me, I am skeptical, because that's just where I go. That's my prejudice. And that's not a reflection on her, that's a reflection on me, isn't it? Because when I hear, um, well, I, you know, I hold this this rock or this crystal, and I concentrate my attention on it, on, on what I want while I'm holding it, you know, that, and then I have this sort of dreamscape about it. Well, I mean, is that any different than just going to bed and saying 10 times, I want to dream about this, and then your brain dreams about it? You know, after a couple of days of doing that, maybe your, your brain finally picks up on it and dreams about it. Um, how is that any different than that? Now, that said... What I just said, maybe it is the same thing, and I'm missing the point that, oh my god, you can concentrate on something, and then within a few days of doing that, uh, you will pull out of the ether information re regarding that, regarding your concern. Um, so maybe that is more amazing, and I, I really appreciate the fact that she gave us, she gave us sort of a step-by-step -step instruction of what she does, so that we can all do it, and will it just end up being dream material? I don't know. The thing that makes me question my, my own prejudices here is that she states, I know the difference between this and a dream. This is not a dream. Um, and I certainly in my own life have experienced that. So who am I to not take her at her word? So I'm going to take her at her word. Whether or not that's the same thing that the Kogi experience as the Aluna, uh, of course, I can't know. But um, I certainly am not going to sit here and invalidate her experiences um, simply because I have a prejudice. Because really, what's my prejudice? My prejudice with the New Age isn't about, isn't about that what they're saying isn't possible. It's that it's not grounded in anything. And he or she has grounded it in an explanation and said, look, you can do this and you will achieve this. That's an explanation. That's what my Western hierarchical mind demands. Um... So that's not like just I had an out-of-body experience and all of this happened and I go out of my body every night and I float over a golden city and blah, blah, blah. I mean, all that sort of stuff I have no use for because 
there's no way to prove it. And usually the person saying something like that strikes me as a repressed abuse victim or something, you know, repressing something and that this is their happy place. Um, I mean, I've dealt with enough new age people to know, to know that much. And here's where there becomes a problem for someone like Teokasin, which is, I think if I were to say, yeah, I, I went out of my body and I floated over City of Light and blah, 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 he wouldn't be looking for the psychological cues in me necessarily that, that tell him that I'm screwed up. He would take me at my word because he experiences stuff like that, or he has heard stuff like that, or he doesn't have judgments in Lakota. They don't have better than, worse than. They have incorporating new information. Um and that's probably a horrible way to put that for the Lakota, incorporating new information. But, you know, I'm, forgive me my language barrier. So I think he would not be as discriminating, perhaps, about somebody telling him something like that because it's not in him to be. Because in indigenous art, who's going to mess with you? I mean, when you're in balance, there's no lying. <laughs> you see? And so why would you lie? Why would you lie about it? It just wouldn't even occur. But we do lie because we're rational, Western, hierarchical, blah, blah, blah. And I think maybe that was the whole problem of when we came over here in the first place. And it was like there was probably no no sense that someone would come over on a boat and dominate you and try to kill you off or enslave you or steal your gold or any of that sort of stuff. I bet that wasn't even that wasn't even in the cards, you know. So, I mean, this gets to a whole other situation of like, well, if these people are so smart then why didn't they see it coming? Or why didn't they do anything about it? Why are they, you know, it's always, um, it's always the loser in the battle who claims empowerment in some other way because they were actually disempowered. No, 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 no. That's all because we don't understand that it's not in their language that somebody would come over and be the devil. <laughs> That's in our language. And we brought our language with us. And... That's what happened. I mean, I really think that's what happened. It's it's open heart meets closed mind, and we call them naive, stupid animals and then kill them. And somehow we're the good guys because we've got doctrine on our side. But really, they were the good guys all along, and it's not that we're bad guys. It's that we're ignorant. We're little brother. We don't know what our true face is. We don't know that indigenous means enlightenment, and that enlightenment doesn't mean evolution or transcending to something higher necessarily, but just giving up the self and dying back into proper proportion and health. So I hope these words are making sense, and I'm now going to leave the topic for other things. Let's see. We got a letter here. Letters we get. Um... The subject line is, Your Skeptical Fans, and it says, Hello. Pardon the airplane. I don't know if you hear that outside my window, but now there's a giant airplane going by. It says, Hello. I've been enjoying your podcast for several months now. After listening to your George Hansen show, however, I wanted to draw your attention to the fact that Paratopia, like all paranormal podcasts, has fans in the skeptical community. I say, quote-unquote, fans, because we do not listen with a, quote-unquote, know-thy-enemy mentality but because we genuinely enjoy hearing the about... Okay, spelling error here. Uh, because we genuinely enjoy hearing about ideas and experiences of people with a different worldview than our own. As you may expect, I thought your characterization of the skeptical community was unfair. 
In your coverage of the Emma Woods scandal and your critique of hypnotically recovered memories, you took a very skeptical point of view. I think that it is fair to assume that in doing so, you were not motivated by a psychological need to appear like the smartest person in the room or by a desire to suppress David Jacobs' research because it challenges your paradigm. The same is true of most skeptics. Most of us are science buffs who are acting upon a desire to promote science in critical thinking. Where we really feel the need to go on the offensive is where we see predatory and manipulative people like David Jacobs causing real harm. For example, quack doctors who con the terminally ill out of their money in exchange for useless treatments. We see promoting science education and critical thinking as a way to do that. Far from being threatened by the possibility of the supernatural, I would like nothing more than to believe that there is a spirit world or that there are beings from another dimension visiting us. The reality is simply that none of the evidence I've seen so far has been sufficient to convince me. That having been said, I have no trouble believing that intelligent, educated, sane people such as you could draw a different conclusion. For you to generalize that skeptics are pompous know-it-alls who seek to suppress what they cannot explain is no less arrogant slash closed. Close. Arrogant close. Close. Well, I'm sure he meant closed. Um, well, skeptical fan, first of all, thank you for being um, a skeptical fan. I have a neighbor who reads the Skeptical Inquirer and doesn't believe anything that comes out of my mouth about UFOs or any of that. Um, we're really good friends. And so, you know, obviously I understand that there are skeptics that are just fine. Um, what we were talking about is really more, A, organizational um, debunkers who, I don't think that you can make the case that there, there are not people who just go on TV um, to present another side that is unlearned. They go on TV and they haven't even touched, as George Hansen said, a book on the subject. It's just saying no to say no to preserve the status quo that everything is just okay the way it is and will be answered by science. I mean, that's that does exist, and that is the organizational part of it. The other part of it, and let's call it debunking, if you want to just say, okay, we're not really talking about anyone with skeptical minds. Clearly, you're not in that category of people, right? But there's also the other piece of it that is these people on message boards. I've been to skeptical message boards and I've tried to interact with people and as soon as they find out who I am or sort of what my take on this stuff is, I immediately get trashed and trashed and trashed by person after person. They take great glee in doing it. Um, so that's been my experience. Now, yeah, of course, you know, we mentioned on the show Derek Bartholomus is quote-unquote one of the good ones. And my neighbor, I would consider one of the good ones. There are people you can have a discussion with about it who are open and honest. And I think that if you were to present them with something conclusively other, they would see it. They would recognize it and they would change their stance. And then I think there are people who will not. Um, and they're not even looking for it. Like what you're talking about is that you're looking, you're looking for some truth here. And you haven't found it in, in what you're seeing with this stuff, but you're still willing to look. I don't think that's true of these organizations. I don't think Amazing Randy wants that. I don't think, you know, Dr. Sky or whatever, you know, Dr. Sky Medicine Woman, whatever his name is, uh, wants that. And that's clear by what they say in their actions. And so who is it that funds them? Well, it's humanists. It's sexu secular humanism. 
uh, is the funding mechanism behind that. And secular humanism is a belief system. The belief that science will solve everything, materialism, nothing to see here. That's a belief system. Um, so I, I do think that we tell the difference. Um, it's just like when Jeff says, I don't like science, and then people say, well, what do you mean by that? I mean, he's not literally saying there's nothing in science here that it's the mindset. It's the mindset of this is going to be right, and this is going to prove out everything uh, in a way that is logical and rational and you know, makes complete sense along our lines as we are right now. I think that mindset is completely off base and arrogant and can't know it. <laughs> Again, this gets right back into what we were just talking about. Can't know it until it dies. And it either dies physically and you find out, or it dies unto itself while the body remains alive and uh, the entire being goes back into balance. I think that's kind of, well... That's my perspective. I won't say that's Jeff's perspective, but I secretly think it is. I think when Jeff, and I'm sure you're listening to this, when you say, like, I don't get what these people are saying. Like, he didn't want to, the Peter Kingsley interview he wanted to listen to uh, as we were doing it for the finale, um, but he didn't want to take part in it necessarily because he feels like it's a it's beyond him. And I think that that is uh, complete bullshit. And I think anyone who's listened to this show I think if you really listen to what Jeff's saying, we don't disagree as much as he says we do. It's just that he needs to, like most people, like like I do, need to hear it and mull it over and incorporate it into themselves to put it into their own words, you know? Um, but I think he does have the same innate gifts that anyone else does. Um, and I don't, I don't, I don't buy for a second that he can't, hold his own in a conversation with anyone on human consciousness. Um, but I think Jeff, that you like to retreat into this lie. You tell yourself of, Oh, I, that's, that's not for me. I don't get it because you know, you want to take your time and, and sort of incrementally get there on your own or else it's not real for you, which I think is true for all of us. Right. Except that I, I, I just think with me, like I just saw it immediately. Um, and when I say immediately, I mean it took me a while to get to that immediate point. But once you get there, it's like you rest and you go, oh, exhale. <laughs> uh, and then something new happens. Um, but that something new happens requires letting go. And that's the thing that um, most of us don't want to do because letting go means letting go of all of this. And then what happens then? What happens when you let go of the rational hierarchical structure and you still live in it because that's what your society is and that's what your world is? Um, you know, it ain't pretty, but, um, but I think we're all inevitably getting there one way or another. Um, that's way off base and I'm sorry I just rambled, but Jeff, perhaps I had a message for you, Jeff, <laughs> from on high. No, I'm just, I'm, I'm kidding about that. I should say that, that our, our finale will be, um, a panel discussion now with, uh, listeners of the show once again, and then Jeff and I will do our final rap chat. And I think that this is actually more apropos because of course the second incarnation of Paratopia will be user content. So user generated content. And we now have at least, I would say over a month's worth of shows, um, either in production or produced. So that's coming along nicely. And I hope more people start to contribute. And I, I think once you start hearing it, you're going to want to contribute, but I hope you do it before you know, do it ahead of time so that I can edit all this stuff 
and all I need to do is press a button on Fridays, you know, because I'll have it all done, and then I can have some freedom during my weeks. Um, that would be great for me, because otherwise this is going to be yet another monumental project, and, you know, I'm sure just because we're going away um, primarily on the public front, um, that's not going to stop people from shooting slings at ar- and arrows at us, and uh, that stuff does bug me to some degree, and, I, you know, just who needs who needs the headache anymore, so... The best way for me to stay away <laughs> is to be able to edit a whole bunch of shows up front and then not have to even, like, pay attention to that stuff. And I know I don't have to pay attention to that stuff, but um, I'm weak, and so I do pay attention to that stuff. But not if I'm not on my computer all the time. See? See how that works? Now, one final note. Uh, we have switched from Podbean to Cyber Ears cyberears.com and we're having a problem switching over the iTunes feed and all that stuff so just be aware that on your end you may need to switch over to www.cyberears.com to listen to our show Um, maybe not maybe we'll get this all worked out in the next week or so but uh, just in case uh, there you go all right Peritopia We will see you at the 70th and final episode of this incarnation next Friday. For Jeffrey Ritzman, I'm Jeremy Vaney. Thank you and good night. And thank Barbara Three Crow as well. And good night.